I do want to talk a little bit about um, this morning's message because it um, generated a lot of uh, discussion, and, and there were a lot of people, uh, actually a, a few of you, that uh, messaged me directly and, and said that um, until now you didn't know that that you know Jesus did not go into hell because that's traditionally what had been taught that when he died he he descended into hell and uh, and then came up uh, from that and I even had a article forwarded to me from the Baptist Press that um, said that Jesus didn't descend into hell but rather it provided an alternative alternative explanation that um, I, I thought was faulty as well um, so we, we can take a look at that but let's um as we consider that, let's look again at um, the passage in Ephesians. Ephesians uh, chapter 4, this is um, what I had preached this morning from verses 7 through 10. And verse 8 is the quotation from Psalm 68. Um, verse 8 is that quotation from Psalm 68. And um, I, I was talking to Maureen a little bit just uh, tonight. And, you know, I, I had provided some of those principles about understanding Old Testament quotations, that they're not always word for word quotations. Sometimes they're just references. Sometimes they're paraphrases. And um, these are really just um, I'm kind of giving you some principles of hermeneutics, um, a Bible interpretation. You know, so as you go through the scriptures and you see the Old Testament being referred to, just keep those things in mind. I think it'll be very helpful for you when you try to process uh, what's going on. But right there in verse 8, we see Paul um, says, uh, well, starting in verse 7, he says, To each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave uh, gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill um, all things. So that part where um, Paul says he descended into the lower parts of the earth, that has been often um, interpreted as being, yeah, he went down into hell. Um, there, there's a few problems with this view of hell, and, and some of it... Some of this was made um, was made worse by the um, King James translation, um, because in the Greek there are two words that um, are often used. One is Gehenna, which is translated as hell. So when we see Gehenna in the Greek, that's hell. But there's also Hades. Hades. Um, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll see Sheol. Sheol refers to the underground, um, it really kind of just in general underground. Um, but sometimes it can be used to refer to the realm of the underground. Same with Hades. Um, Hades could be used to just refer to underground or, or this kind of realm where, where there's an alternative, uh, you know, there's all these creatures and whatnot that, that exist there. It could be used for either. Um, but with the King James Version, what they did is that all the times that um, Hades showed up, um, they translated that as hell just as they translated Gehenna. So in other words, in the Greek, there were two different words. And in the King James, they would translate both as hell when I don't believe it was the intent of the New Testament writers for them to be understood the same way. Um, so let me give you uh, some examples. And, and let me show you where, the, where, um, where often the confusion is. Go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3, chapter 3, verse 18. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. So in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Peter is making the point that uh, Christ died once for all, the just for the unjust, um, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And then verse 19, he goes on to say, in which he also went 
and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who were who once were disobedient with the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And then uh, verse 21 is, is also often confused. Verse 21 corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Um, so right there in verse 22, let me just point out when it says that he has gone into heaven, he's at the right hand of God. That's the ascension. We know he ascended up into heaven, but he didn't just simply ascend up into heaven, but he ascended all the way up to the right hand of God. Um, you can't get any higher than that. So he's at the right hand of God. And, and at the end of verse 22, you see angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Uh, what does that mean? Well, once he was once he was resurrected and, and he was and he ascended, well, Philippians 2, 9 through 11 talks about how God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, right? He, he's, he has the name above every name and that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this idea is that upon Jesus Christ's ascension to the right hand, all of creation and even this spiritual realm were put into subjection under Jesus Christ. And so when Ephesians 4.8 talks about how he led captive a host of captives, it's really this idea that all of creation, even the spiritual realm, are now under the sovereign rule of Jesus Christ. Now, they don't, that doesn't mean um, that uh, demons are good. Demons are still evil. You know, but it's just like the book of Job. If you were to look at the book of Job, remember Satan goes before God and asks for permission um, to, to go after Job. Uh, it doesn't mean Satan was good. But, um, but he can only operate within the boundaries that God provides for him. Yep. Um, when Jesus descended, did he not go into the realms where, like, Abraham was the one to bring everybody alive because there was all the dead people walking amongst? Well, and that's, that's what has been the traditional interpretation. So let's go back to that. So in this same passage, going back to verse 19, it says, um, In which he went and made proclamation to the spirits um, now in prison. So here's, um, here's the verse, made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Now it doesn't say hell. Okay, it says prison. It's the word for prison. Um, and just to, make this, uh, just to make this point quick, and we, we can kind of flesh this out a little bit more, but I do believe that when we die, um, those who are in Christ, those who have faith in God, um, we go to a, a, a kind of a holding place. It's not a prison. I wouldn't describe it as a prison. You know, so I, th I think Abraham's bosom kind of portrays that. Um, but for those who are condemned, they also go into a holding place that's referred to in the New Testament as Hades. Now, why wouldn't I call that hell? Well, it's not until you get to the book of Revelation that it's said that people are thrown into the lake of fire. So the lake of fire is hell. Um, but it, it's made very clear at the end of Revelation that no one is thrown in there until at the end when the final judgment comes. Um, that's when that happens. But until then, they're in a place. They are in a prison that we, you know, might call Hades. That's what's used in the uh, in the Greek often to refer to this is is Hades. And we'll we'll take a look at that um, Abraham's bosom passage um, in just a moment. But looking again at verse nineteen, okay. So in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits. Now made proclamation. Um, this is often interpreted as um, preaching the gospel. Okay, but the, the, the Greek here, so the, the Greek word for, um, you know, uh, for preaching the gospel is the same word that we get evangelism. Um, so the, the Greek word uh, for preaching the gospel is not being used here. 
there are many words that can be used for proclaiming, for, for preaching or proclaiming. Um, this word here is not the same word that's used for preaching the gospel. Um, so what is this and who are these spirits? So it says he went and made proclamation to the spirit. So who are these spirits? Well, verse 20 says, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So he's talking about spirits that were disobedient in the days of Noah. Now, this is significant um, because when you think about the great flood that came, um, the days of Noah, the state of the earth was not good, right? I mean, look at, uh, keep your place here, but go to Genesis uh, 6. Genesis uh, 6, 5, particularly, you know, this, this describes the state of the world. This describes why God brought the flood. Um, it wasn't simply that man was sinful, but that sin had reached an unprecedented um, you know, just level of activity. And in Genesis 6, verse 5, we read, uh, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. Um, so there is a lot of evil going on, and I believe that there was a lot of demonic influence going on at that time as well. Um, and so there's, there's, um, there, there's the spirits of man who, who were disobedient uh, to the Lord, um, and, and some have interpreted this as, as really being demon spirits. Um, that's a whole different discussion. I don't want to get into that tonight, but let's just say at this moment we're talking about an unprecedented level of evil in the world. All right? And so when you go back to what Peter is saying, he, he's proclaiming to the spirits who essentially um, continued to do evil during Noah's time, that, that contributed to this escalation, this, this unprecedented escalation of evil in the world. Um, so these are not righteous people. And so to say that he proclaimed the gospel to them when they were unrighteous and unwilling to repent and unwilling to obey God um, wouldn't make sense. Uh, because otherwise, you know, if, if you were to say that, then, then you've got to start saying, well, you know, then that means that those who have been disobedient can be saved in the afterlife. That gets into the whole idea of purgatory, which is not supported anywhere in Scripture. Right. Could it be construed as, as proclaiming that he had defeated death? Yeah, so what is this proclamation? I, I would say that the proclamation was his victory. Um, he, he was proclaiming his victory over death. He was proclaiming his victory. And really, his, his victory was multifaceted, right? So he, he was victorious over death. He is victorious over sin, which leads to death. He's victorious over all the, um, the, the, the demonic spiritual realm who sought, to, um, who sought to block the work of Jesus Christ right, going to the cross. Um, so he really proclaimed his victory and connected to that victory is this idea that all of creation was made subject to Jesus Christ. Um, so that was, in fact, um, turn to Romans chapter one. I mean, I think this is the uh, partially the point that Paul makes here at the very beginning of Romans chapter one. Romans chapter 1, um, verse 1, starting in verse 1, Romans 1, 1. If you go there, it uh, starts off with the introduction, uh, Paul, a bondservant um, of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus, which, by the way, it's not bondservant, it's slave. Um, he uses the literal word for slave, doulos. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, 
And verse 4, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, verse 4, when it says he was declared the Son of God with power, it's not saying that he wasn't the Son of God until this point. But it's saying that this was a declaration with power, that he was, he was declared in a powerful way, that this, this Son of God is, is declared so with power by the resurrection. And that power, meaning that he is now sovereign, he has, been, uh, he has ascended up on high, and everyone is in subjection to him. I believe that's what Paul's point is when he says he was declared to be the Son of God with power. Um, that, uh, you know, while the, uh, the demons, and we know that Jesus Christ, while, you know, in his earthly ministry, the demons recognized who Jesus Christ was, often referred to him as the Holy One of Israel. One of them even said, um, is now the, t- the time in which you have come to torment us. So they even know that there, there's some judgment coming up in the future. Um, but, uh, you know, until Jesus Christ, um, you know, at that time, Jesus Christ was submitting himself to God the Father. He submitted himself all the way to the point of being crucified. Right, being mocked by people and, and all that. And, um, and it was with the resurrection that with power, Jesus Christ went from the lowest of lows to the highest of highs um, and, and uh, ascended all the way to the, to the top. Um, so yeah, that's I, I would say they're making proclamation to the spirits was proclaiming um, his victory. So this is to the spirits who were disobedient uh, during the days of Noah. And, and these were especially spirits who had disobeyed God and didn't believe God um, that, that he would bring the flood when he did. Um, they, they, would not, uh, they, they did not respond to Noah's preaching when Noah had called them to repent. Noah was really the mouthpiece of God at that time, um, and they, they, they would not respond. So I would say that this passage does not teach that he went to hell, um, but this passage does teach that he did proclaim his victory to those who had been rebellious and were already dead. Um, and he had proclaimed his victory over sin, over death, and, and uh, the fact that he would be ascended all the way up to the right hand of God. Um, and, and all of, uh, all of creation, including the spiritual realm, would be um, in sub- put into subjection under Jesus Christ. Um, so that, that's what I believe this passage is telling us. Uh, the word hell doesn't show up. If he had really gone to hell, then I believe Peter would have used, would have used the word hell and not said prison. Um, Go to chapter 4. Um, this is another verse that often gets confused. Um, in chapter 4, Romans. I'm sorry, 1 Peter. Go back to 1 Peter. Sorry about that. I'm back in 1 Peter. Um, so 1 Peter, these are the two verses that I think come close, come closest to supporting what I call this errant view, but it's, it's really a misunderstanding. So 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, and we'll start in verse 1, but we're going to end in um, verse 6. Verse 6 is the one that often gets confused. So 1 Peter 4, starting in verse 1, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, um, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Which, by the way, I'm looking at these three verses, and it's amazing how similar this is to, to what Paul taught in Ephesians. Right? I mean, think about Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It, you know, you walked after the course of this world, after the prince of the power of the air. But in verse 4, he says this, In all this, um, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And then verse 6, For the gospel 
has for this reason been preached even to those who are dead, and though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. So this verse 6 right here is another one, um, and this is probably the verse that often gets used to um, support the idea of purgatory. So the Catholic idea of purgatory is that even if you die not putting your faith into Jesus Christ, or if you die having committed um, sins that separate you from Christ, that you go to a place where you can pay off your sins. Uh, but if we look carefully at, at verse 6 here, uh, verse 6 says, For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. Now, the verb tenses, under, observing the verb tenses is going to be very important. It's going to be very important. So look at this once again. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached. Is that present or past tense? Past tense. It's been preached. Okay, it's been preached in the past even to those who are dead. Are dead, that's past or present? Present. They are presently dead. Okay, what, what Peter is saying here, he's pointing out those folks who had the gospel preached to them while they were alive, but they have since died and they're now dead. So he's saying that these are, these are folks, the gospel for, has for this pur- purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men. So he's talking about, um, you know, in this context, I believe he's talking about how, how men judge one another with unrighteous judgment. But they're judged in the flesh as men, but they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. So I believe in this verse, um, he is referring to essentially saints who have put their faith into Christ as a result of the gospel, but have since passed away. And so Peter is making the point that the gospel has been preached to those saints that have already died um, for the purpose that they may live forever. You know, even though that they may be, they may be judged or condemned in, in the way that men do to each other, as Peter had been talking um, through this letter. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and in this verse, and you're, you're, you're laughing. T- t- share, share, share. <laughs> you lost me on that one. <laughs> well, let's, let's look at it again. So, so verse 6, once again, the, the gospel for this reason has been preached. He's talking about a past event, right? Okay, the gospel has been preached. He is talking about a past event, even to those who are dead. So now he's talking about those presently dead. He's not saying that the gospel is preached to the dead. He's saying the gospel has been preached to people who are now dead. You see the, you see the distinction there? So they were alive. So the implication here, they were alive when they heard it. They have since died. They, they were alive and they responded to it. And now that they are dead. So Peter is saying that's why the gospel was preached to them who accepted but have since died. That's essentially what I believe he's saying. And, and again, in here, there's, you know, there's, um, there's no idea of, of purgatory or you know, or, or hell or anything like that here. It, it's, it's just talking about those who have passed away and that the gospel was preached to them in the past. They accepted. And, and you know, for, for people at this time, too, um, there was confusion about eternal life. And, and Paul even had to address this, I, I think, in the book of Thessalonians, um, where, where he says, you don't have to worry about those who have passed away. Um, they're going to be raised up. That's the whole reason why he talks about how they're going to be resurrected. Because they were concerned that um, their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who had passed away, they're not going to see eternity. Um, They thought that um, everyone who's in Christ would live all the way up to the return of Christ. And Paul says, no, those who have died, you don't have to worry about them because they will be raised up when Jesus Christ returns. Um, So there was some confusion as to what happened to those who believed in Christ but actually died. Um, Well, that's physical death. What Jesus Christ came to bring was spiritual life. And then the spiritual life in the future will lead to a physical resurrection um, at the proper time. 
So these are the two verses um, that, that often, uh, well, this one primarily gets used to support purgatory. Um, and then the other one that we looked at is probably the main one that gets used to support Jesus Christ going into hell. But you see, the word never shows up. Hell never shows up. And, and let me just show you um, Revelations, just to Revelation chapter 20, just to solidify this. So Revelation 20 and starting in verse 7, um, and this is after the millennial kingdom is completed, um, starting Revelation 20 verse 7, we see this. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. He will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four, in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Um, and they came up to the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. So this great war, um, it's, it's a no contest. Uh, verse 10, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So there, there's this uh, misconception that... <coughs> The devil is in hell right now, and he's reigning in hell somehow. Um, but we see here, he's not in hell yet. He's going to be thrown into hell, and he's going to be thrown into hell against his own will. He doesn't want to be there. All right, so it's going to be at this future time after the millennial kingdom is complete, before the eternal age, that he's going to be thrown into hell. But then furthermore, we continue on. Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. So there you see the word Hades, and this Hades is just referring to the underground. Okay, but Hades um, in the King James is often translated as hell. So Hades is just underground. Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Um, so this is a future event. Um, the lake of fire is what we uh, refer to as hell. This is hell. This is where the eternal torment um, happens. Um, but getting thrown into hell is a future time before that eternal state uh, begins. Um, any comments or questions about that so far? I don't know how many of you were uh, brought up in a church other than a Baptist church, but I was brought up in a Presbyterian church, and uh, one of the things that we did was memorize what is called the Apostles' Creed, the Apostles' Creed um, um, has many uh, valid statements in it, yeah. Yeah. but one of the statements in yeah. the Apostles' that's Creed right. is, he descended into hell. Yeah. That's, uh, that's part of the old Apostles' Creed. That's right. And part of what I memorized as a child. And uh, this shows the danger of uh, uh, handling uh, a man-made uh, uh, statement of faith yeah. uh, and turning it into scripture, uh, uh, right? Making this equivalent to what's in the Bible. Yeah. It, it's not. Yeah. But this is something that um, I realize as I think about this. Yeah. Uh, that's been in the back of my mind for 
decades. And it's something I learned as a child and uh, accepted as um, as being as true as the right. rest of the apostles. Right, believe, right. Which isn't too bad, the rest of it. Right, right. Yeah, so what uh, Maureen was saying is that there's an Apostles' Creed that a lot of people memorized. And the Apostles' Creed, if you look at it, it's actually very, very good. I mean, I, I think um, it's, it's rock solid. But there is this one statement that Jesus descended into hell. And, and the thing about creeds, uh, creeds were, um, were created as a, as a memorization tool um, for us to help uh, learn the kind of the important uh, points of the faith um, in an easy-to-learn manner. So they can be very helpful in that way. But, um, but creeds do not equal the Word of God. So you want to be sure that the creed that you're memorizing or working with is actually faithful to what the Scriptures teach. And, and, and that's true for, like, statements of faith, um, confessions, uh, confessional statements, things like that. You know, they're very helpful as teaching tools. Um, but you always want to make sure that um, what, you're, what you're memorizing or what you're teaching or what you're learning is consistent with what the Scriptures say. Um, that's uh, that, that's going to be the key there. Um, turn with me to Luke chapter 16, uh, verse 19. And by the way, to that point, um, this idea that um, in the Apostles' Creed that Jesus descended into hell, um, I, I got this article um, sent to me, uh, and uh, the article was uh, from, I think it was Baptist Press or one of the Baptist organizations that um, asked the question, did Jesus descend into hell? And they answered no, which I agree with. So they, they got it right. Jesus did not descend into hell. But they mentioned the Apostles' Creed. Um, and, and what they explained is that what Jesus did is that he descended and he proclaimed the gospel to the Old Testament faithful. So the saints of the Old Testament had been locked in a prison. And what he did is he proclaimed the gospel to those saints and freed them from that prison. Um, and, and so that was their conclusion. And I looked at that and I said, well, they're right that Jesus did not descend into hell. And they're right. They, they actually had a very good description of how the King James Version um, translated Hades as hell when they shouldn't have. You know, that, um, so there was a mistranslation. They got that part right. But then when they got to the interpretation of what really happened, um, that's when I, I looked at it. I said, no, that, that's, that's not correct either. And, and this is going to be one of the passages that um, I, I would use. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. So the question is, from that article, um, did the Old Testament saints, were they in a prison waiting for Jesus Christ uh, to, to, to die and proclaim the gospel to them? Um, well, I see some people already shaking your head, and you're right, it, that, that would be incorrect. But let's take a look at this, Luke chapter 16, verse 19. This is the rich man and Lazarus, uh, the rich man and Lazarus. And by the way, this passage sometimes gets used to support um, purgatory as well, but this actually disproves purgatory, and I'll show you, I'll show you how in a moment. Uh, verse 19, now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, verse 23, in Hades, there's that word. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes. So he went to a holding place that's referred to as Hades being in torment and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. So what we see here, right in this story that Jesus tells, we have two different locations um, for those who are, who are going to be saved, who are saved, versus those who are condemned, right? So we have a place where Lazarus went, and we have a place where the rich man went. And then verse 
24, and he cried out and said, Father Abraham. So this is um, another cue here that Lazarus was Jewish. Okay, he, he, was, he was a Jew. He, he belonged to the nation of Israel. Um, he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that, they, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. So we see that Hades is not a pleasant place. Whatever this holding place is, it's not pleasant. Um, it's, it's really kind of a, a preview of what's to come with the lake of fire. Um, but, uh, but we see also, once again, uh, wherever, Lazarus, uh, wherever Lazarus is, uh, you know, the, the rich man is in a different place. He, he wants Lazarus to come just so he may, he may dip his, the tip of his finger in water and cool off his tongue. That's how much agony he is in. And verse 25, but Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. So that verse right there, verse 26 that annihilates any concept of purgatory. Because the idea of purgatory is that you go, you pay for your sins, and then you can go to heaven. Okay, but the point in verse 26 is that there's no crossing over. Okay, you're, you're not going to be able to get out of where you're at and, and where you're condemned to, to go. And verse 27, then he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that they may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Um, so this is a very clear affirmation, actually, that people must respond to the gospel in this life. I mean, that, that makes it crystal clear. This, uh, this um, de defeats the idea of purgatory in so many different uh, directions. But, but really, this idea that um, if, if Old Testament saints were held in a prison um, that they needed to be freed from, then you would have a hard time explaining Abraham's bosom that Abraham was in a place where he was not being tormented, where obviously he's not being depicted as being in prison, um, but this is not the final state yet, so we wouldn't say that this is the eternal state of heaven and, and, and hell. Um, Abraham is not in a place of, of prison, but rather um, he's in a good place. And, and we know from uh, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, that Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as what? Righteousness. Righteousness. So he had already been declared righteousness all the way going back to Genesis 15, 6. If he had been declared righteous, why does he need to go to a prison to hear the gospel? He's already been declared righteous. But he's been declared righteous, and how is it that he can be declared righteous? Because he was a sinner just like the rest of us. The only way that he could be declared righteous through his faith in God was that in the future Jesus Christ would come to die for the sins, not only for us, but all the Old Testament saints in the past who had put their faith in God. Does that make sense? Um, so this is just from this passage. My, my point is this. If Abraham was in a prison, I don't think it would be, you know, we wouldn't have this portrayal as we have it. Um, but there is another um, important passage I want you to look at. And question. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me, verse 23, when it used in the Yeah, I would say that's much closer to the truth than, than just calling it hell. So, so at least in the notes. Yeah, in, in the notes, right. Accurate. Right. Yeah, and, and that's why, you know, to use hell, it just confuses the issue. 
um, because um, hell is, is a place of eternal torment. Well, Right, right. Yeah, that's right. And and um, there's um, there's also a lot of people that argue against um, hell being a place of eternal torment. Um, so they'll they'll what they'll point out is that the Greek word is Gehenna, and Gehenna was a literal place. It was a literal place where they they burned uh, a trash and and it, it was it's a very visceral place where you you go and 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 there's a constant flame that's burning, just burning uh, like garbage and and waste. Um, not here. So Gehenna is the word used to translate hell. And what I'm saying is that Gehenna was actually a literal place. But, but bear with me for a moment, um, because when Jesus Christ mentions Gehenna, um, he clearly uses it symbolically for eternal torment. All right. You know, like, for instance, go to Matthew 10. Uh, Matthew 10, and go down to verse 28, Matthew 10, 28. And here he's um, instructing his disciples, and he's sending them out uh, into the world to uh, preach the, the gospel. And Matthew 10, verse 28, he says this, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. So this is talking about the inner being. They can kill you physically, but they can't kill your soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in where? Hell. Now that is the Greek word Gehenna. And for the people at that time, they would have recognized this. There's a literal place outside of Jerusalem where where there there was this constant fire being burned uh, for, for trash and waste and whatnot. Um, but here, I would argue that in verse 28, he's clearly using a literal place symbolically. Okay, why, why do I say that? Because he says, do not fear those who kill the body, but un- unable to kill the soul. So he's just talking about physical death. Death. Don't worry about those who can bring physical death to you. And if you literally were taken to Gehenna and you were burned up there, that's all it is, just physical death. But what he's saying here, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and Soul, not just body, but soul and body in hell. So he is referring to, you know, he mentions a literal place, but it's clearly symbolic for a, a spiritual place of torment. So I, I should say spiritual in the sense that it's going to be eternal. That It, it is a literal place that, that uh, you know, when we talk about hell, the lake of fire, that is a literal place. But he, he is using um, this, this image of Gehenna um, symbolically to refer to the literal hell in, in the future, that the lake of fire. Yeah, Bob. In that verse, um, fear him, yeah. and him is capitalized, yeah. therefore reference to... Uh, yeah, well, you know, and here's the other thing, too. Um, the capitalization um, is an English translation. Uh, is That's an English translation decision. So if you went to the Greek, the pronouns are not capitalized. Um, so when you see him um, in the Greek, it could refer to a person, it could refer to God. But clearly in, in the context, when we look at this, the reason why we know this is God is because only God has the power to destroy both body and soul, right? Um, so we would, we, would just, um, we would just conclude from that context that he is talking about God who can destroy both soul and body um, in hell. And so I would say, though, though hell, Gehenna, is a literal place. He's using it symbolically to talk about the future lake of fire. Um, which is which is eternal. We just read through Revelation where it talks about day and night, forever and ever. Um, there's a lot of people that argue that um, 
hell is uh, is not eternal, but um, but rather um, you know you go there and you're just completely annihilated. Um, but when you look at Revelation, it says tormented day and night forever and ever. Um, that's you know it's it's hard to argue around that. You know it's it's really hard to argue that away if if a person is just destroyed and loses all consciousness. Um, so so that's uh, so yeah th- this is uh, where I would go to. Um, to, to show that Gehenna, though referring to, a, you know, Gehenna itself was a literal place. It refers to something eternal. Um, so, I mean, you know, people will say it's not hell, it's Gehenna. So, and I'll, I'll say, call it whatever you want. I don't care what you call it. You can put whatever label you want, but it's clear that Jesus is um, using this label to um, refer symbolically to a future place of eternal torment. You know, and, and uh, we know from the Gospels um, that... Um, Jesus would often contrast eternal life with eternal death, right? So you can't say that eternal life is forever and eternal death is not. You know, e- eternal punishment is, is not. So there's, there's a sense in which um, the word eternal is used for both um, salvation and condemnation. Um, and if you say it means one thing here and another thing there, then, you know, we have a, we have a contradiction of terms. Um, so does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, Anne. Um, I just want to find out on the Abraham's bosom yeah. where Lazarus ended up. And leading captivity captive, is those the, are those the Old Testament saints that were that could not go to heaven because Jesus had yeah. not yet come? Yeah, yeah you, you notice I didn't really talk about that this morning. Uh, yeah, I did. <laughs> that, that is a hotly debated one, and it's... Um, let me put it this way. In the context of Psalm, um, Psalm 68, um, it would appear that the most reasonable explanation is talking about those who were against him. He, he, took, them, he, he took them captive, right? So they're, they're now subjected to him. Um, now, what does that mean for us? Uh, some people will say that um, this includes people that he saved. So all of us, we were all enemies of God. Amen? Okay, we were all enemies of God prior to um, hearing the gospel. And so some would say that, that he took those who were enemies and then he turned them around and, and, uh, and gave them back to the church as gifts. Because when you get to verse 11, you know, next week when we get to this passage, it's going to say he gave some as, as, um, as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as um, pastors and teachers. Um, so there, there's one view that says he takes these people and he turns them around. He, you know, he basically redeems them and gives them back as gifts. Um, I think probably the, the more simpler explanation, the safer explanation, I would say, is that um, this is the idea that, um, that all of creation was subjected under, under Jesus Christ. Now, God has always been sovereign over all things. But when Jesus Christ, um, you know, when he became incarnate, you know, we think about Philippians and how he existed in the form of God but did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself um, by, by taking on the form of man, by taking on the form of a slave. Um, Jesus Christ um, gave up his high and lofty position up in heaven. And he, uh, he, he no longer had sovereign authority because he was submitting himself now to the sovereign rule of God the Father. Um, so all things had always been under God the Father. But when Jesus Christ died and was resurrected and ascended to the right hand, the, the visual here when he's at the right hand of God is that now he shares that throne with God. He shares that throne with God the Father. Um, so I, I would say that the probably the simplest explanation that he led ho- captive, a host of captives, um, is this idea that, that all of creation has been sub- subjected to him. And, and even the book of Ephesians, those first three chapters, there's a few places where Paul will bring that up, that, that all things have been subjected under Christ. So, But yeah, that, that's, a, that's a hotly debated one. Any other questions at this point? Um, yes? 
Yeah, so in Matthew, um, yeah, this is another passage that often gets uh, referred to. This is towards the end of Matthew. Um, the exact passage is escaping me, but let me look at this. Hold on. Towards the end of Matthew, and I'm going to get there in just a moment. Matthew 27, Matthew 27. Yeah, 52 actually. Yeah, 52 and 53. Um, And actually, we can go back to uh, 51 and actually 50. 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. So this is his final action while he's on the cross, and then he yielded up his spirit. And then verse 51, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. And then verse 52, the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. So fallen asleep, this is a euphemism for these are saints who have died. Um, so, so these were dead saints, and, and we could probably conclude that um, they were probably Old Testament saints, really, because that uh, you know if they had died prior to Jesus Christ being resurrected. These are Old Testament saints who had faith in God. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. It's, a, it's um, an unusual passage, um, and, and it's, a, it's, it's an unusual sight, right? I mean, I can't even imagine tombs opening and then bodies just coming out of those tombs and then entering the city and greeting people. Um, it's, um, it's, it's, it's some kind of sight. But, but Matthew throws it in here, and, uh, and so we conclude that this really happened. Now, when we think about the future, when we think about the future, um, when you respond to the gospel, when you respond to the gospel, you are promised eternal life, right? So spiritually, you live forever. Um, but physically, what happens to you? You still die, all of us. Uh, I mean, unless, unless Jesus Christ comes before our time of death, um, we're going to die. Physically, we're going to die. Um, and, um, but just because we die physically doesn't mean we die spiritually. Um, spiritually, we live. So think about the thief on the cross, right? Um, what did Jesus Christ say to him when, uh, when you know, the thief uh, said, to, said to him, remember me? And he said, you know, today you will be in paradise, right? So the idea is spiritually that he was going to go to a good place. And um, so spiritually, he was going to go to a good place. But physically, um, his body is what it is. Now, in the future, what we're promised is that when Jesus Christ returns, there's going to be a resurrection. There's going to be a resurrection. Um, spiritually, we've been alive all that time, but resurrected physically. So now we're not only just physical beings, but at the resurrection, we will be reunited with a physical body. Um, but it's a physical body that's, uh, that's glorified. Now, what I believe we're seeing here when it says that the tombs were open and, and people were raised, this is, um, I believe, a preview of the resurrection. Now, for these folks, though, that were raised, um, they were not raised for eternity, I mean, these, these folks, if they, were, if they had lived for eternity, we would see them now. We would know about them. You know, all the world would be talking about them. But we know that he, though that they were, they were raised up from the tombs and came and greeted people, we know that they died once again. So this was not the final resurrection, but I believe it's a preview of what's going to happen to those who put their faith in. Um, I wouldn't say that this was a release uh, for them. They were Old Testament saints. Spiritually, I believe they were already in a good place. Um, but um, but physically, their their bodies were resurrected, and for this time, their spirits came back to their bodies, and they're they're resurrected. But I wouldn't call this a release from any kind of prison, and I, I don't think you can. Um, you're not going to you're going to have a hard time supporting that with any part of scripture. In fact, as we consider that, turn to Matthew 17. Matthew 17. 
Matthew 17. Matthew 17. Well, when we go to Matthew 17, this is the transfiguration of Christ. Um, and, and we don't have to read through it all, but if you've read through this at least once, you know that a couple of Old Testament figures show up with Jesus. Uh, Matthew chapter 17, look at verse 3. Matthew chapter 17, verse 3, what do we see there? And behold, who appeared? Moses and Elijah. Now, when we think about the Old Testament characters of Moses and Elijah, Elijah didn't actually die. He got whisked up in a chariot up into heaven, right? Um, which, by the way, there, there's, uh, to me, there's another proof that the Old Testament saints were not in some sort of prison because where was Elijah taken? He was taken up into heaven. And Moses, though, did die. He actually did die. Um, it said at the end of Deuteronomy that the Lord himself killed him. Um, so Moses is dead, but what we see here in the transfiguration is that they appear alongside Jesus Christ. If they're in a prison, how could they appear alongside Jesus Christ? You know, how could they be in a prison? Because uh, at this point, Jesus Christ had not yet died. You know, he had not yet uh, been, been crucified. He had not yet died. He had not been, yet been resurrected. So that, that hadn't happened yet. And here we see Moses and Elijah both showing up side by side along Jesus. Um, and I believe that really is the spirit of Moses and Elijah that they saw. There's no reason to believe otherwise. Um, so once again, th this idea that, um, that, that even saints were kept in some sort of prison. I mean, I think you would have to really... Um, interpret that idea into a couple of passages in Peter um, because the rest of the Bible just doesn't support it. It just doesn't support it. Does that make sense? All right. Wow, it's almost 7 o'clock already. <laughs> Time flies. Time flies when we're having fun. Um. <laughs> Time flies when we're You know, I, I can talk and talk and talk and it just, um, I can go on forever. Um, let me, um, let me do this. Is, is there any other questions, um, about these passages have I, have I helped to explain that Jesus Christ didn't go down into hell? Um, do, do you see at least my, you know, my reasoning for it as we look at those passages? And like I said, the, the strongest support from it really comes from those passages in Peter, first Peter three and four. And if first Peter three and four doesn't teach it, then it's not taught anywhere else. You're not going to be able to um, find that kind of uh, rationale anywhere else. But I do believe Old Testament saints, um, they were, uh, you know, they were considered righteous by their faith. Um, and if they were considered righteous, they need not be in a prison awaiting for Jesus Christ to proclaim the gospel. In fact, Jesus, when he talked about Abraham, he even said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. You know what that tells me? He already knew the gospel back then. Um, he already knew the gospel back then. So there, there's, um, I can come up with plenty of proof over and over again that, that there's this concept of a, of a prison for Old Testament saints just doesn't hold up. There is one more I'll, I'll take you to, Romans chapter 3. Romans uh, chapter 3. And this is um, the great passage on the justification by faith. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. Um, up to this point, um, Paul has been making the point that the righteousness of God had been revealed through the Mosaic law. Okay, we know the righteousness of God through the Mosaic law. That, that reveals his righteousness. That reveals his standard. Um, but unfortunately, that, that, that righteousness through the law cannot save anyone. It doesn't save anyone. It only condemns. And so when we get to verse 21, this is the good news from Paul. He says, now apart from the law of the righteousness of God has been 
apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. So there is... Paul here is saying that previously the only, you know, the righteousness of God through the law, that's how it had been revealed. Um, that's how the righteousness of God had been revealed, through his law. But nothing gets saved through the law. But now the righteousness of, righteousness of God had been revealed in a different way, which is through Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ was also a manifestation of the righteousness of God. But this manifestation of God's righteousness can save, you know, by faith in him and his work on the cross. That's the point that he's going to make here. Verse 22, once again, through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, meaning all of us need uh, this faith in Jesus Christ, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And then verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. So this is saying that God displayed publicly Jesus Christ. The propitiation is this payment, this payment for sin in his blood through faith. And here's the purpose. As we look at the second half of verse 25, this was to demonstrate his righteousness. Um, so when he publicly displayed Jesus Christ, he demonstrated, God demonstrated his righteousness. Why? Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Now, what's that talking about? In forbearance, he passed over the sins previously committed. Well, there are many saints of the Old Testament who are saved, but they were sinners just like us. If Old Testament saints are saved, but they're sinners just like us, then how is God righteous? Because we're saying that because God is righteous, he must judge sin. He is just and righteous. He must judge sin. But this is saying that the death of Christ is now the proof of God's righteousness because all those Old Testament saints that he had saved, their sins were paid for on the cross in the future um, by the sacrifice of Christ. That's what he means when he says, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. That's in reference to the sins of the Old Testament saints, the old saints who had faith in God. My, my point here, as I'm looking at this, uh, pointing out this passage, it says that God passed over their sins. Um, why? I, I would have a hard time arguing that if they're in a prison and they need to hear the gospel in order to be released. Because it says God passed it over. In other words, God, God has put them in a good place. He, he overlooked their sins. But the only way that he could overlook their sins righteously was by making sure their sins were paid for. And their sins were paid for by Jesus Christ when he died on the cross. But until Jesus Christ had died on the cross, it had not been clear how their sins were going to be paid for. That was not clear. Jesus Christ uh, resolved that. And then verse 26, and this is the second purpose, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He would be just, meaning that his, his, the fact that he is just is affirmed, but he is also the justifier, and this could be interpreted as the one who makes us righteous. He's, he's the one who makes us righteous and the one who proves himself righteous through, through us. Um, so we have kind of a, a dual purpose there, one for the Old Testament saints and, and for those currently who put their faith into Jesus Christ. Um, Clark. Uh, this is going to sound really basic. So the people before Jesus Christ, do they, do, do they get to heaven? Mm -hmm. um, yes. So the short answer, yes. Yes. Um, you know, Abraham's bosom. The question is, um, does Abraham's bosom refer to heaven or is there a holding place? You know, either way, it's a good place. Um, it's a good place. And if it's, if it's a holding place, then, then they will eventually get to heaven in the eternal state when it's all set up. 
Um, but when Jesus Christ said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, um, I, I think that's proof that wherever they're going, it's a much better place than where we are now. It's not a prison. You know, for, for the saints who die, it's not a prison. All right. Does that make sense? Um, but, um, you know, also, wherever they are, while it's um, not a prison, Jesus Christ also said, I go away and I come back. I go away to prepare a place for you. So wherever um, saints are today, I think there's an even better, greater existence coming up when the eternal state begins in the future. You know, when God creates the new heavens and the new earth and, and the eternal state begins, I think it's going to be far, even far. So where saints go today, much better than where we are to right now. And then when the eternal state, that's going to be even better. Um, so it just gets better and better for those who have faith in Christ. That's the good news. It just gets better and better. And it's going to get worse and worse for those who do not. Worse and worse for those who do not. All right. Um, any other questions? Any other comments at this time? Yes. This last, uh, um, this last passage that you mentioned, you know, when you said in Romans six twenty-five, you know, for that God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, and you said He was passing these sins over. That is, you know, when you think about the Passover, that the first yeah, Passover. Yeah. These people were all sinners, but yet yeah. because they put the door, the blood on, on the that door, door, that's right. That's that right. That is a continuation yeah. of that. Amen. Amen. It's an amazing picture. Yeah, it is an amazing picture. And if you think about, uh, and I, I keep referring to progressive revelation, the idea that we didn't know everything at, at, at one time. He didn't reveal all of his plan at one time. The nation of Israel um, at that time, um, they really had very limited um, teaching, available teaching about who God was and what God's plan was. And so it's amazing as an Israelite, um, you know, you don't know that Jesus Christ is coming. You're, you're, you're fuzzy about the, this concept of a Messiah. Um, but prior to, uh, you know, prior to being delivered out of Egypt, um, God wanted to make, the, make sure um, that they remembered that image of the blood of the perfect lamb on their doorpost that spared them and set them free. They, God wanted them to remember that picture forever. And, and it's still celebrated today, even by secular Jews who no longer know what the meaning is. I mean, that's the Passover. The Passover, um, just about uh, any, any Jew, every Jew, uh, most of them would, uh, would observe the Passover, have some sort of feast or festival with regards to the Passover. And God's intention in establishing that was for them to remember their deliverance from Egypt and to remember the blood of the perfect lamb on their doorpost that set them free, that spared them from the wrath of the destroyer and set them free from, from, from slavery. I mean... You know, how beautiful a picture can, can you come up with that ends up painting the reality of, of our salvation? And, and just on that note, one more passage, one more. Exodus 34. And, and just because you brought that up, this is, this is going to be so worth it. Exodus 34. Exodus 34, verse 6. You remember Moses had that request for God, show me your glory, right? He wanted to see God's glory. So God took Moses, he put him in a cleft of the rock, he let his glory pass by in front of them. But it wasn't just the visible glory, it wasn't just the visible Shekinah glory um, that Moses was seeking. But Moses also received this revelation about who the Lord was, who God was. And starting in, in verse 6, starting in verse 6, Exodus 34, verse 6 says, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands. And then look at this, 
This is so important because the Mosaic law can't save anyone. And yet here's what God reveals in verse 7. He said, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. God is the one who is compassionate and gracious. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. But then look at the very next part. He says, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. How do you reconcile those two? Wait a second. You forgive transgression, iniquity, and sin, but you're saying you will not leave the guilty unpunished. Well, who are the guilty? All of us, right? We're all guilty. So how can you say that you forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin, and yet you will not leave the guilty unpunished? Without Christ, that looks like a contradiction. But with Christ, that makes perfect sense. Because only in Christ can our sins be forgiven. And only in Christ can it also be true that our guilt has been punished. Jesus Christ is the resolution to that seeming contradiction in Exodus 34. And it, it's beautiful that this is revealed as Moses had asked to see, see his glory, and this is what was revealed to Moses. Absolutely amazing. Amazing stuff. All right. Um, any other comments or questions? Because if you bring up something else, I'm going to have to probably bring you to another passage. All right. All right. Let's go ahead and close out here and enjoy some uh, great pizza for tonight.